Hello and welcome to the 99th edition of the Forever Blue podcast. Um, I'm Ian Cheeseman. I'm the host. Well, normally things are going to be slightly different tonight, uh, but normally I'm the host of this podcast. uh, And it's sponsored by Charles Louis Group, which is an advisory business advising on development of finance, mortgage advice and estate agency. They started out life as a simple mortgage company, offering buy-to-let, first-time buyer, and moving home mortgages. But Charles Louis now provides support for the whole property transaction process, including an independent state agent, an expert commercial financial team, and renowned mortgage team. So they do everything. Have a look at the website, charleslouis.co.uk, Louis spelled L-O-U-I-S, so charleslouis.co.uk. There's a phone number on there. Dave's the the man who is in charge, so contact him, tell him that you heard about him here on the Forever Blue podcast. So normally the format of the podcast is that I have three guests with me, sometimes an ex-player and usually members of the Forever Blue squad. And the next podcast, which will be released at the weekend, the weekend that is of the Spurs game in the Premier League, um, is going to be our 100th podcast. On that one, um, pretty much everybody who's been involved in the podcast as a regular will be uh, taking part and sharing some of their memories of the last couple of years of City and, of course, talking about the Tottenham game. But for this one... It's slightly different. Now, Harlan and Will, who does a lot of the work behind the scenes, editing and helping me out, which I'm very, very grateful for, um, uh, both of them, and Harlan has taken the lead on this, said, uh, no, we want to do something slightly different here to celebrate 100 podcasts. Uh, He said, I want to interview you. So, Harlan... Um, you can be Mark Mike Parkinson. I don't remember Mike Parkinson yeah, or yeah. Jonathan Ross or Graham Norton or whoever you see yourself as. And and I will just sit back and um, and answer the questions. Off you go. Well, you'll enjoy yourself with this one, Ian, because this will uh, this will bring you right back to nostalgic days of yesteryear. That's right, Ian. It's uh, it's time to turn the tables and ask you for your top ten favourite City games ever. Now you've attended thousands of City games. And to narrow that down to just 10 must have been some task. But we had a couple of weeks to have a think about it. It's been something that's been in the making for a couple of weeks. We finally sat down during the national break and decided to do this. So give us your first City game that is in your top 10. Number 10, up first, in. Well, I have to say that it is very, very tough. Um, it's like picking your favourite kid. And, you know, I've got two and they're both equally in my heart. And all the City games I've attended, um, and it is well over 2,000. And if you count reserves and youth team and women's games and everything, it's a long lot of uh, games. It's hard to pick out. When you say favourites, there's different ways you can categorise favourites. You can say the the favourites because they were the best games, you know, the best quality games. Um, For example, the 99 playoff final was a... A terrible game, actually, but it was highly significant and very emotional. And actually, that doesn't make my top 10. But that would be a game that would make, if it made the top 10, it would make it because of the emotion, because of the significance and all that sort of stuff. Uh, And that might be, you know, in a way, a favourite game. The reason it doesn't make my top 10 is because it was the third tier of English football and it actually wasn't a very good game, but we all remember it because of the drama. So there's a huge sentimental attachment to that game, but I'm not sure I would describe it, perhaps surprisingly to a lot of people, as, as one of my top 10 favourite games, even though it was it was an amazing game, which I'm so glad that I was at. But then 
I'm glad I'm at every game, even the most boring nil-nil draw. So uh, that <laughs> that's no different. So I'll put them into to order. And I'm going to start with, uh, again, another surprising one as the 10th in my list. And this it was, a, was another game that probably wasn't great, but it was highly, highly significant. It was uh, City in 1983 at home to Luton Town. It was the last match of the season. City went into this game needing a draw, or better still, a win, to stay in the top flight, the first division, as it used to be called. That's all. Just, just needed a draw or a win. And they were at home to Luton Town, the only team that could pass them. So they had it completely in their own control. There was none of this looking at the bench and messages and how's the other team going on and everything like that. It was all about City playing Luton. It might seem bizarre to say this is one of my top 10 games, but it was. It just feels like one of those um, games that you'll never forget that you were, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to miss it, even though it was terrible in the sense that it went the wrong way. Uh, Radian Teach scored a goal with seconds to, to go in that game for Luton. And the thing that everybody remembers, and if you go and search for it on YouTube, um, you'll see this. David Pleat, who was a Luton Town manager, ran onto the pitch with his tan shoes on, um, sort of very exaggerated arms up in the air and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and the irony is, I think Luton went down the following season, but they stayed up on that day and City were relegated. Uh, I wasn't working for the BBC then. Um, I hadn't even started working for City as a commentator on the video, which I did later in the 80s. So I was there just as a fan. And although, you know, I was around, I was alive when City were in the second tier of English football in the mid-60s before they came up and then won the title in 68 and went on to great success with Bell Lee Summerby, I'd never seen City relegated. It didn't feel like it was in my DNA to imagine City being relegated out of the top flight of English football. Despite what fans of other teams say, City have always been a very big club with a big ground and a, a rich history. So the thought of City actually being relegated, um, you know, just was beyond my uh, conception. And I, and I went to the game that day thinking this will be OK. So when that Radiantish goal went in, when the final goal, when the final whistle went, um, the rest of the, the match became irrelevant, but the moment became huge. And I make no apology for saying that I cried. You know, I was I was emotional and I looked around at other people in the stands and and I saw other people crying too. And we were just sat there in silence. It was stunning. But I'd also say, and I've seen City relegated, of course, since then on other occasions, that it is those days, those moments, those games that make you as a fan appreciate your club, your team, the efforts even of those players in failure. And when the success comes along, which I had to quite, quite, wait quite a while to see um, on certainly a regular basis like we are doing now, they are so much sweeter. So um, despite that being a negative day, I would still put that in my top 10. Maybe I'm just a, a masochist or something, but but that is a day I'll never forget. And I'm, and I'm so grateful for the fact that I was there and lived through that game because it has made a big difference to how I watch football in the, in the future. So that's at number 10. So that was Luton at home, Ian, in what year again? Just remind 1983. us. 1983. 1983, Luton Town at home. 
Um, like I say, Ian, fantastic description of that game, the game, the scoreline. You know, how did you get how did you get to the Luton game, by the way? Um, in those days, I, I, uh, in 83, I probably, no, my dad had moved. Um, no, my dad was, I would have gone with my dad, I think, at that time. And he used to work for British Rail. Um, and there used to be, now there's a tram service, but there used to be a train from Radcliffe, where I lived, um, into Manchester. So we would have gone in on the train together, probably got the bus on A-Town Street. They used to have a whole load of uh, double-decker buses lined up on A-Town Street and then gone to the game. And then after the match had finished, um, we generally walked or gently jogged back to the station um, and got a pink. The pinks were usually ready, the Manchester Evening News pinks. Yeah, 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 I remember. Uh, Victoria, just before we got back on the train to go home. Now, whether we caught the train that day, I doubt it because we was, you know, it was a stunning sort of moment. Um, so uh, it may be that instead of getting the half past five, we were on the six o'clock train going home. But um, yeah, that was how we used to do it in those days. Yeah, and you've obviously told us what made the day so special. Obviously, a negative day, but for you, a memorable one because you saw you saw the fan base, you saw us at our most vulnerable, and it made you realise how thankful you were to be a City fan. And now you're reaping the rewards of that, as we now know, in 2020, and and as you have done for the past eight to ten years, Ian. So it's been been one hell of a journey, hasn't it? What is your number nine then in your list of top ten City games for all reasons, whether it be nostalgic, whether it be hair raising, whether it be, like you say, for any reason, this is your top 10. Number nine, Ian. Right, well, this, is, uh, this isn't a first-team game, actually. Um, this is the FA Youth Cup final from 1986. Okay. Um, uh, there were 18,000 people at Main Road to watch the FA Youth Cup final that day. Um, it was a two-legged FA Youth Cup final. Uh, we'd already played at Old Trafford, um, so we were trying to pull back a, a lead that United had in fact, I think it was 1-1 in the, the first game, if I remember rightly. Um, but in the second leg, City had to win, basically. And they did. They won by two goals to nil. This was the youth team that had in it David White, um, Paul Molden, Andy Hinchcliffe. I loved Ian Scott, who was a, a really creative midfield player. Mm. Um, you know, Ian Brightwell. It was that sort of an era. Um, and, you know, Paul Lake, you know, playing. I think Paul Lake played as a striker, if I remember rightly, in that game. Um, and went on to be this great midfielder and great defender yeah. and one of the most exciting young talents that, that City have ever produced. And, and then I suppose I'm affected slightly retrospectively when I look back on it, that many of the players in that team have become friends of mine down the years. I never thought that would happen at the time I was, I was watching this team. Um, in fact, Susan Bookbinder, um, her brother, John, played as played in, I think he was substitute in that game and subsequently died at a very early age and uh, very tragically. And I, I know that, that um, Susan remembers her brother very, very fond, fondly, John. Um, so he shouldn't be forgotten. But, you know, there were, there were so many great, great players in that team, great characters, um, and and they were, you know, a fantastic group. They went on then. One of the games that perhaps surprisingly is not in my top ten, uh, because I could just list a load of derby matches. Frankly, when City beat United and have a top ten of those, yeah. but City beat United five one um, in in nineteen eighty nine, which is you know we're talking three years after this. Uh, and many of the players who were stars in that five one victory against United, the first team. I played in that Youth Cup final 
uh, you know, Andy Hinchcliffe putting the famous five fingers up when he headed the ball in and, uh, you know, Lakey dribbling around a couple of players. I mean, obviously David Oldfield scored a couple and, you know, but but nevertheless, a lot of them were players who come up through that youth team. And I've always loved watching youth team football. Yeah. Always watched, like, like watching the young players come through. Slightly different now because they're not all necessarily from the Manchester area, but that group of players was really, really special. And so... That victory that day in front of 18, I think there were more than 18,000 in Main Road that day. Um, but, you know, I just I remember making my way to, to Main Road, uh, you know, through the, the streets and thinking, blimey, I won't park anywhere here. You know, you thought, I won't have to park as far away as I normally do for a first team game because there won't be as many here. There was nowhere to park, park miles away, somewhere up Denmark Road. But, but great, great game, great game. So that was the Youth Cup final of what year in? 1986, 2-0 City beat uh, United in that second leg of the final and lifted the trophy. So that shows you how long Ian's been going to games for. He went and watched Luton at home, so us versus Luton at home in 83. And three years after that, you was watching Lakey. You were watching Lakey play for us in the Youth Cup final. And now we interview Lakey or you interview Lakey and we speak to Lakey on the radio and we speak to him on interviews all the time and he's on the podcast now and again as well. And you actually saw him pull on the City shirt in a Youth Cup final back in 86. So I bet even for you now, when you speak to him on a regular, it's it's mad to think that you watched him with Andy playing that in that Youth Cup final. Yeah, I mean, one of the promotions that City got was against Bradford um, when they, they drew at Bradford. And uh, David White and Andy Hinchcliffe, both from that youth team, played on that day. And I was just starting my career. I was at Hospital Radio in Oldham. And um, I invited David and Andy to come down to my hospital radio show at nine o'clock on the Sunday morning, the day after the Bradford game. And they both came and both sat with me for two hours doing a radio show. Can you imagine that now? It's the equivalent of getting Sergio Aguero and David Silva the day after the 2012 uh, winning the Premier League, you know, and getting them to come down to to talk to little me on hospital radio at the start of my my uh, my broadcasting career. But David and Andy both did, and that's one of the reasons why I've been such good friends with them for such a long time. And when you went to that that game against Luton at home, then were you were you were you broadcasting then, or or were you were you not you weren't broadcasting then at all, were you? Just a fan oh. doing nothing like that. Between then and the Youth Cup final then, within that three-year period, is that when you started to really kind of get into hospital radio then and and really start to to start your career? I got married in 1984. And I think by 1986, which was the year of that FA Youth Cup final, that was when I was starting my amateur broadcasting career in 86. So even when I went to that Youth Cup final, I'd been just going there as a fan. Uh, but by 1989, three years later, I, I then had three years of amateur broadcasting experience mm-hmm. behind me. It wasn't until 1994, um, the journey had other little quirks along the way of doing bits for commercial radio and whatnot and club call. But it was eventually 1994 when I started working full time at the BBC. So, yeah, it was all mixed in with the games. So that one is the Youth Cup final at home at Main Road, in front of 18,000 people back Officially. in 1986. Well, um, Ian, let's move straight on then to your number eight. Why is it in there and why is it more special than many of the other games that you could have put in? 
Yeah, well, as I say, it's um, there's loads that people will say, I can't believe he's not put that again in, but <laughs> and, and maybe people will be surprised that this one's only at number eight. But the 2011 FA Cup semi-final okay. between City and United at Wembley um, becomes number eight. And obviously that was a, a game which saw Yaya Toure score yeah. the goal. Um, we went to where I was commentating on the game by then for the BBC. Um, I went to the game uh, scared because it was a Manchester derby and losing a Manchester derby is horrible. Losing a Manchester derby at Wembley in an FA Cup semi-final would have been horrendous, um, especially since I was describing the action. So I had nowhere to hide. Um, and my wife and my son went down to the game as well. They were sat in the crowd while I was commentating. And I asked my son, Daniel, um, if he would wear the scarf that my mum had knitted me mm. for the 1976 League Cup final. Um, she, she died a year after that, but she knitted me a woolen scarf, uh, just sky blue and white stripes. And at the time, there used to be badges that you could collect that were about an inch and a half in diameter. And they were just basically a colour picture of a player. That was it. No name on it, nothing like that. Yeah. So I had one on each stripe of the 12 players who played in the uh, League Cup final in 76. Uh, those badges have gone now. I don't know what, what happened to them, rusted away or thrown away. But I've still got the scarf. And I regarded that as my lucky Wembley scarf. So when we got there in 2011, I said to my son, who I'm sure would have preferred to have worn a more trendy scarf than my <laughs> old mothballed, you know, sort of mum-knitted scarf, but he wore it for me. Yeah. And, uh, and so, therefore, when we won and I met him, afterwards and had a little sort of quick catch up with him and had a, a break in broadcasting um, both of us were in tears um, and he wore it again for the cup final against Stoke uh, a few weeks later and um, again the the emotion wasn't lost on us that um, that, that I was that he was wearing that scarf on behalf of me and my mum but to see City beat United 1-0 that day to me, the huge turning point, the power shift in Manchester. Um, and Yaya, a player I absolutely adore, scored that goal. And um, and, and that was it. That was the turning point. And, you know, the, the, the atmosphere being at Wembley, I'm sure I'll repeat this a lot in this top 10, but the crowd, being, being in the Munger crowd in that situation makes all the difference. You know, the noise of Wembley and mm -hmm. the roar and that sea of sky blue and white. So that one is number eight in my well, list. I, I completely agree. That that's in my top ten. That was the first um that was the first derby I actually went to live. So it was my first derby. It was my first cup semi-final. It was the first time I visited Wembley. So for me it was it was a complete it was the complete package for me that day. And I, I went with two good friends of ours. It was just brilliant. It, it can't it can't not be in a top ten that one. It, it was the turning point. I believe it was the moment that City fans started to realise we were we were about to arrive, and I, I genuinely think that that was a real turning point. So 100% that's there. It almost reminds you of the story on Blue Moon Rising, and obviously something that we've all seen with the pie against Spurs when Ricky Villa scored and the lad didn't bring the pie to the game. And your version of the pie was Daniel's scarf that your mother knitted for you then. Yeah, and it's obviously people like superstitions. Um, for many years, I've been uh, people in the Blue Moon Rising film saw... Um, me wearing the scarf underneath me, me pullover on when I was commentating on City Spurs at the end of that season. If you remember that film, yeah. you know, it was an actual feature film for people who don't know what we're talking about here. 
and and I was part of that film. They filmed me, and I revealed a lucky shirt that I have. A friend of mine who I've known since I was a steward on the football specials back in the seventies, who I still to this day, obviously not right now, while we're in uh, COVID times, but in normal times, um, I would be travelling home and away. Well, certainly away with Charlie, my friend, who's quite a bit older than me, who I met on the football specials many years ago. And Charlie gave me this polo shirt with a city badge on it, uh, which was too big for him or, or too small for him or whatever it was. And it's got the proper Manchester crest on it. Um, so it's, it's dateless, really. And I love that crest. And I started wearing it. And from that point onwards... Um, I mean, it was a long time ago now, but City's fortune started to rise. Maybe I started wearing it in that 98-99 season, you know, and everything's been history since then. And I've worn it at every single match I've attended. It's become my lucky shirt. So we all have these little yeah, lucky yeah, yeah. things, you know. Um, I mean, recently when uh, I saw Pep wearing a certain cardigan that he threw on one side when a result went wrong. So we're all a little bit... Um, like that, we can't help ourselves. That, that makes we? us who we are, though, Ian, doesn't it? It makes <laughs> us who we are. I mean, I know I've got my, I've got my certain shirts that I'll avoid wearing for certain games. And Jess will always say, "Why do you need that specific shirt?" And she didn't get it at first. Now she does, and she started to kind of. I think when you're with someone, they, you pick up each other's traits. And she's now started to put four or five shirts aside for for home games only. And we don't wear them at home now behind closed doors because we believe that. We wouldn't wear that at the game, so why? It's one of them. It, but I think that footballers are the same. I think we, we, the fans and the footballers have got that in common. That footballers have certain superstitions if they don't put the socks on the certain way and whatnot. I think that makes us the football family. I think that makes us who we are. I don't think we'd be normal if we didn't do that now, would we? Last time I wore this is obviously a NASA shirt. It's not even a City shirt that I'm wearing while I'm talking to you. I haven't worn my match day shirt since Old Trafford. Uh, back at the beginning of March in 2020. And I won't wear it again until I go to a first team competitive game um, of City in, in the stadium. That's the next time I'll wear it. And that scarf uh, that we talked about only comes out of cup finals or Wembley. Wembley or cup finals. It's good that you've got that tradition. And I think that your mum would be really proud that you hold that scarf in such high regard and that Daniel, she'd have been proud of Daniel, I suppose, wearing it at Wembley that day. And I think that you could almost say that, forget the pie, the lucky scarf started this this new journey that we're all on. And uh, <laughs> without your mum knitting that scarf, we could be in the National League. And you'll never know, I don't suppose. No, uh, My dream's to wear it at a Champions League final and I'll be wearing it. <laughs> well, there we go. Well, we can hope. And I think that, you know, I don't think we're too far away from that. And, um, well, you might even have to let me have a picture with it on if I'm that lucky because it seems <laughs> like it's, uh, it's brought us a lot of luck so far, Ian. So that is the FA Cup semi-final. 2011 against United, 1-0 win, Yaya Torre back in 2011 at number three. Number four then, Ian, straight in with number, uh, well, I say with number three, sorry, in number seven. I'm working forwards, you're working backwards. Let's go in then with your number six then. Um, no, 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 you've lost count here now, Harlem. We're up to number seven. So uh, number 10 was City against Luton. Number nine was City's FA Youth Cup final against United. Number eight was City versus United in the semi-final. Yeah, number so this seven, is number right, seven. Yeah. So number seven in my, my list. And it might be that, you know, next week I think, oh, blimey, I never mentioned that one. And so it's not completely definitive. But... Um, this was in 1985, so this is another uh, oldie, really. Um, it was a beautiful, sunny day, fantastic weather. It was also quite a tragic day because it was a day, although we weren't to know this at the time, 
of the terrible fire at, at Bradford. Um, and we didn't find out about that until afterwards. But this was a promotion day for City. It was against Charlton Athletic at Main Road. Um, it was a 5-1 victory. Um, it could not have gone better. I think the official crowd was something like 48,000, maybe. I'm telling you, it was a lot more than that. That If you see any images of the Kipax that day, uh, and again, you can look it up on YouTube, the, the Kipax is absolutely heaving. There are no gaps in it. Uh, there are estimates that were 55,000, um, which is well over the, the crowd capacity that day. Everybody wanted to be there. Everybody squeezed in. And it wasn't a letdown. Billy McNeil was the manager, not always the most popular manager of City at that time, but he was the manager. And a couple of players who I have a lot of time for, um, Paul Simpson, had an amazing game. He was only a kid then. He was on the wing, but he just had no fear. Um, he ran Charlton ragged, albeit that they had a couple of younger players in, particularly in goal. And it became a little bit one-sided. Um, but David Phillips, who was on the podcast last week, scored a couple of goals. Andy May, Jim Melrose and Simpson himself. Um, if I remember rightly, Alex Williams was in goal. Um, and it was it was just an amazing day. I remember going afterwards to meet with some City fans and um, uh, we were at a party that had already been arranged before the game. And it was just like, you know, a fantastic evening of, of, of celebration. And um, I, I don't think I've smiled as much from beginning to end of a game as that Charlton game. Um, it, just one that will always stand out in my mind. So that's number seven then, Charlton. Uh, like you say, for obvious reasons, certain players you watched. What was the result in that one again, Ian? 5-1, 5-1. 5-1 win, City win. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, the noise that day was, was amazing from the crowd. The crowd always plays a big part. Um, and and just, just wonderful, you know, expansive football. I mean, you know, we think of Pep Guardiola's team as well, but expansive. But on that day, City's players played with freedom, with energy, mm. with lots of uh, dynamic movement and everything. You know, and, and there were, you know, there were players, I think Jim Tolmy might have played in that game, who was another favourite of mine, you know, that just just some some of my one one day we'll do another one about favourite players and but some of my favourite players were playing in that game and a lot, uh, you know, and, and it's just remember that sunshine. As I said, that I don't know what point after that game I found out about the, the or any of us found out about the Bradford fire. It wasn't like now where, you know, you go on your phone and it's internet and you find out straight away. I may have actually got home before I found out what had happened at Bradford. And even then it may have been coming through in sort of fits and starts. I don't even particularly remember that I was that aware of it when I went out that night. Um, so, so maybe, maybe I hadn't been listening to the radio or whatever. Uh, so obviously it is a, is a day now in history when you look back and, and, uh, sadly remember the, the, the terrible day at Bradford and, um, and, and, and it makes you even more grateful that, uh, you know, that, that we were somewhere else rather than in that environment. And, and, you know, my, my sympathy and understanding goes to them, but from a city perspective, it was a fantastic day. So that was obviously number seven. We'll go straight away number six then, Ian. We're nearly down now to your top five. Obviously in reverse order now, we're back on track after I went from one when it was number 10. But we're back on track. We will get to the top five in a couple of minutes' time. But you're number six, Ian, straight in. Right, well, I mentioned the scarf. Um, and this was where the scarf made its debut, the 1976 
Football League Cup final. Um, the League Cup has had many names since then. The Rumbleaws, the Milk Cup, the Littlewoods Cup, the you name it, there's been a million Carabao at the moment. But as far as I'm concerned, and back then, it was just simply the League Cup. Um, it was, I, I didn't go to the 74 League Cup final. Um, you know, I was at the stage, I was still a schoolboy, and my mum, my protective mum, um, didn't, wouldn't let me go, wouldn't, didn't want me to go. So I didn't go to 74 when Rodney Marsh um, didn't go and collect his medal because he was sulking because we'd lost to Wolves. And I certainly wasn't um, allowed to go in 1970, 69 to the League Cup final, to the European Cup Winners' Cup final, to the FA Cup final. Um, those were, whilst I was around, uh, were not games I was allowed to go to. So for me, as and, and I always prefer being at a stadium as a match-going fan, my memories all surround being at a game, not watching a game on television. None of this top 10 uh, games I saw on television, every one of these games I was actually in attendance and that makes a big difference to me. And this was the first cup final, this was the first trophy. Um, I went with my scarf on, with my my badges on. Um, I went with my dad. Yeah. Um, we went down on the the normal train, got off at Watford. Um, you know, went over to to Wembley, and we had seats. Um, so it was, you know, round not quite behind the goal, but but you know, in the corner really where the seats were. Uh, we couldn't afford the really expensive seats, but that was where we were, were there. And I, I don't think I've ever cried as much at a football match there were tears rolling down me we won I mean this sounds such an old-fashioned song now but you know we won the cup we won the cup e-i-a-d-o we won the cup you know that you'd never hear football fans sing that now it sounds so old well but, it, nowadays it'd probably have an expletive chucked in between one or two of the lines just to give it that extra bit of oomph as we call it nowadays but I've heard them songs on the on the terraces from videos I've watched and it almost looks just as fun because of the genuineness from the fan base. Is that how it felt on the ground? Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. As I said, the tears were rolling down my face. I mean, the match itself, I thought was a good game. Um, I mean, my original hero was Colin Bell, but the hero, my second hero was Peter Barnes. You know, he was... Mm. He was he's sort of roughly my age and and he and he, he, he a bit like Colin and me. You might not think it about me, quite a shy sort of person, um, and a very naturally talented player, Peter Barnes, who I love to watch, very exciting winger. He scored the opening goal of the game quite early on. Um, and then Alan Gowling, who I ended up doing quite a lot of work with yeah, when yeah. I was at BBC uh, as a commentator. Alan became our Bolton reporter, got to know Alan quite well, actually. Know Peter very well. Um, and those two scored the opening two. And then I remember at half time um, when people were going to the toilet, etc., saying to me, Dad, I don't want to miss the start of the second half. I don't want to miss the start of the second half. And I'm so glad that I... Um, you know, held it as it were, because within yeah. seconds of the start of the second half, um, Willie Donachie floats the ball over, Tommy Booth heads it down, and Dennis Stewart does this amazing overhead kick, um, which to me is is just perfection. And City take the lead 2-1 and went on to win it 2-1. And, um, you know, not only did, did we enjoy that day, um, I'd become... Uh, friends really with Peter and, and Alan and Dennis Stewart um, you know and and that that day will, will, will always be in my mind the following day they had a homecoming parade 
Yeah. Colin Bell had got injured um, in the in one of the games, the Derby match that was in the build-up to City getting to Wembley, uh, where City had beaten United 4-0. Uh, but Martin Buchan had uh, caught Colin and did his knee injury, etc. So the homecoming parade um, ended, of course, outside Manchester Town Hall. And Colin was up on the balcony and the crowd was singing his name, even though he was injured and he wasn't part of it all. And I remember him coming out and taking a wave, etc. It was very, very emotional. Um, and then as I was um, going away afterwards, I mean, I had a fantastic experience in, in Albert Square. I remember going to catch the bus. Um, the bus station was at the bottom of what would now be uh, Market Street, but, but you, you know, where the... Um, shambles is and that sort of area but there was a bus there was the bus stations i remember it there um yeah. obviously it doesn't exist anymore and as i was about to try and get on this bus somebody tried to snatch my scarf and uh, and grabbed hold of my scarf and i right. and i was hanging onto it as i got onto the steps of the bus i think one of the badges might have come loose or dropped on the floor and eventually this person ran off and i picked the badge up and got back onto the bus and and got away so um Maybe my scarf was lucky in that way as well that day, but that was that was a an amazing weekend. I'll never forget. Be honest with us, Ian. Um, you can you can tell us you didn't, but did you go home after that cup final and practice overhead kicks with your dad? <laughs> did you yeah. roll up a ball of socks and do that goal on your bed? I think I might have used a balloon to be fair, rather than a oh, okay. rolled up ball of socks, because it's easier with a balloon in it. And I wasn't very good, but yeah, definitely tried to do that. I mean, as a kid when I was at school, we used to obviously everybody had a favourite player, and and people would be that player, and in the same way we would mimic what we'd seen in the game, and that was a natural thing to mimic. So yeah, everybody wanted to do an overhead kick. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that more players don't don't do it. I mean, I've seen. Um, Trevor Sinclair, another great City player, did it at QPR, uh, one of the, his famous goals. And we've, we've seen other players do it, but nothing will ever beat Dennis Stewart doing it that day for me. No, we've had more scored against us in the last couple of years than we've scored, haven't we? Crouchy's uh, <laughs> one springs to mind. That was a, I think the closest one we've had was Balotelli's over a kick from about four yards against Villa or something like that, I think it was. <laughs> I don't know if you can count that as a Stewart-esque over a kick. Well, I'm not uh, sure that, none of them will ever be as done as Dennis's. King of all Geordies. So Ian's number six, the 76 Cup final then, uh, League Cup final more specifically. And that was against Newcastle here, wasn't it? It was, against Newcastle United. Indeed. Straight in then, Ian, with number five. Um, the game, the scoreline, as you've done already. Who you went with this time as well, which you obviously mentioned you went with your dad to the Cup final. And why it's so special again. We'll go with the same layout for this one as we've done all the way through. Tell us your number five, Ian. We're now into your top five City games attended of all time. This is going to sound strange, this, because <laughs> it's one place above the cup final. It's the same year, 1976. Right. It's the same competition. In fact, it's the semi-final of the League Cup that got right, us to okay. Wembley. It's City 4, Middlesbrough 0, at Main wow. Road uh, in 1976. And the reason that game stands out so much for me was, it. first of all, it earned City their place at Wembley and I knew I would be going to Wembley. And that made, a, you know, I was so excited about the prospect of going to Wembley. So I already went to that game, you know, on edge, really excited. 
Um, City scored, as I remember it, quite early on in the game. Asa Hartford from a Peter Barnes cross. And Asa Hartford didn't score many headers, I can tell you that. Uh, but Peter Barnes that day was was magnificent. Um, I mean, you know, Alan Oakes scored a great goal. Alan Oakes is such an underestimated player by City fans. He's got the most appearances for the Blues yeah, in the club's yeah, history. And yet he's forgotten by, by so many people. Had a fantastic left foot. I had the privilege of writing Colin Bell's autobiography. And when I talked to Colin about his teammates, and you always think of it as Bell, Lee, Summerby, maybe Neil Young, you know, and one or two other players, Alan Oakes is often forgotten. Um, and I don't think he should be. Alan Oakes is a, is a magnificent footballer, a hard-working, um, you know, sweat-on-the-shirt sort of um, thing. I remember Colin telling me a story about Alan Oakes saying that um, when everybody was singing the praises of the Bell, Lee, Summerby era, that um, I might be misquoting this, you'd have to look it up in the book. But essentially, Alan Oakes came in, sat there, listened to it all, and then took his shirt off in the middle of the dressing room, balled it all up, squeezed it out, and loads of sweat was dripping out of it, and then threw it down on the floor and said, when you lot put in as much effort as me, you can call yourself footballers. You know, oh. because Alan Oakes was the engine. He was the engine of the team. And that day, he was a player I, I really liked. He scored a fantastic low left foot drive into the bottom corner, a goal I'll never forget. And when that went in, because it was the second goal in the game, uh, City had lost the first leg 1-0 up at Ayrson Park. So it was a two-leg semi-final. Um, when they got the second goal, that put them in the lead in the tie and it felt like the momentum was going City's way. And I'll never forget the atmosphere in, in the ground that day. Um, that was what I remember probably more clearly than any other City game. Along with that Charlton game, uh, the Middlesbrough game was just a fantastic atmosphere. I know people talk about it's a cliche, under the lights and everything. It was under yeah. the lights and and... It, and Everybody in that, everybody in the ground, it didn't matter whether you're in the main stand, the plat lane, North Stand, Kipax, was singing from the same hymn sheet as the cliche goes. It was just electric. Um, City obviously went on to, to win it quite comfortably. Barnsley himself and Joe Royal got a goal. Um, but, you know, just, just that, that game was so, so special to me. Um, you know, you might think that the, the Newcastle game should be more special because that was the cup final. So it's hard to split them. But, that's why I've gone with Middlesbrough, the semi-final second leg at home being number five in my my list. Indeed, Ian. And I think I think it's important to mention as well at this point in the pod, podcast, especially with you mentioning Alan Oakes' influential nature, especially in that squad, that that goal was almost similar. If, I, if, if, if I'm not insulting Alan in any way, shape or form by comparing him to, um, you know, a more recent player in, in, in that sense, and even one from 99, that goal was almost like the Jekyll goal of 2012 then against QPR and the Horlock goal against Gillingham. Them are always goals that among City fans and football fans alike get forgotten. Um, but without them, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to, in that game, score the third and the fourth goal against QPR. Aguero wouldn't have had the opportunity maybe to score the goal he scored. And Paul Dickoff would have never had his moment against Gillingham. So them goals are arguably just as important as the actual winning goals themselves or the, the second goal in that game against Borough because, uh, sorry, the third goal against Borough because they were so influential in the games and how they panned out in the end. 
Yeah, it was a crucial goal. I mean, when, when we look back at players, we do tend to single out goals. I mean, when you think of Vincent Company, uh, people will talk about the goal against Leicester, the goal against United three from the end of the 2012 season. And yet, what was special about Vincent Company was his defending and his leadership. But yet, people will go, oh, yeah, Vincent Company, that great goal he scored against Leicester. Um, it's sad, really, that, that we only seem to remember the goals. Alan Oakes scored a great goal in that game, and I was particularly thrilled by it. But that wasn't what Alan Oakes was really about, although he had that, always had that in his locker. He always had the capability to score a goal like that. They were relatively few and far between, which is why he didn't make the headlines. But he was an integral part of that fantastic team. And by then, he was coming towards the end of his career. But he was there in the, 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 the late 60s and early 70s when City were were you know an amazing team so I'm, I'm glad he got a, certainly he gets recognition from me but got a bit of recognition from Colin which I would expect nothing less and he's, he should be remembered by City fans very fondly. Well what a great tribute from yourself Ian to our highest ever appearance maker Alan Oaks there obviously pivotal in that 76 League Cup semi-final second leg against Middlesbrough a 4-0 win for City and that makes it into Ian's top five one ahead of the 76 League Cup final against Newcastle. Now, like Ian said, you may be surprised at that. But without that win, we wouldn't have got to the final. So I can completely understand why it's in at number five, Ian. Let's go straight into number four then. Um, we're probably, well, we know we're gearing up now towards your top game. Just give us a little clue. Is your top game your top game? Have you definitely got number one set in stone? Yeah, I don't think it could be anything else, really. Uh, which probably tells anybody what it's going to be. <laughs> um, well, then let's uh, let's not give it away too much. Let's go straight to number four. Then why is number four so special to you? Well, um, this is an odd one. Um, number four in my list of, of all-time City games was a win, and yet it was a defeat. And it's a fairly recent game as well. This was the Champions League quarter-final between City and Spurs which City mm. won by four goals to three, but of course went out on the away goals rule. Um, in my mind, City won that game by five goals to three because to me, Sterling's goal, um, you know, was a goal. And this VAR thing where you rule something out by a millimetre should never have come into it. And when you watch it and Sterling makes his run, uh, he was actually sort of, heading backwards, doing one of those curling runs to stay on side. Um, he may have been one millimetre offside, but he'd gained no advantage because he was actually moving away to stay on side before he then picked up the ball and eventually Sterling put the ball in the back of the net. Um, it was, it was a, this was a great game, no doubt about it. You it know, was, uh, yeah, no, I agree. City took the lead and then Spurs came back, two goals from Son to, to put them ahead. It looked like the tie had gone. Um, then City come back and they eventually lead him by four goals to two. Um, and then Lorente scores the goal. Now, I know there's been a lot of debate and City fans won't like me saying this, but um, I watched the, the Lorente goal again recently. And I think we're looking at the wrong thing there. I, I mean, I don't like VAR. And the long delay after that goal was scored was terrible. And I... Uh, and, but you know, but I actually don't think he handled it, and I know people still say he did. To me, it hit him on the thigh, and it went in, 
and although his arm was near where the ball was, uh, in my opinion, um, he didn't touch it. And anyway, if we're still debating it and so many people have different opinions about it, the goal should have stood. And I, I agree. But City showed great character in that goal, in that game, mm-hmm. because even though that went against them and seemed heartbreaking at the time, and it was such an amazing end-to-end game of quality all over the pitch, just amazing quality, loved that game. Eventually, when Sterling scored that goal, that was just one, that was, that was one of the best footballing moments of my life. Um, rolled into one of the most terrible all at once because I was sat in the um, press box and as it happened, it had never happened before, but my son and my wife were sat just a few rows away from me and I could see them. And that's never the case. They don't normally sit in those seats and I could see them and I would never normally do this either. But when that goal went in, because I sit on the front row of the, or was sitting on the front row of the press box on an end seat, um, I was able to jump up out of my seat and go to them. And then we danced and hugged and enjoyed the moment like we've never been able to do before because of my job and, you know, because of circumstances. And that moment probably lasted for 60 seconds and it was absolutely amazing. Uh, what a conclusion to a great game. What a great story. And then suddenly we became aware of the fact that VAR were looking at it and we all know that the goal was ruled out and City went away out on the away goals rule. So although it was a, a terrible conclusion and City went out, I still remember, first of all, what a great game it was, um, full of commitment, full of invention, full of quality. I also remember that celebration has been one of the best celebrations ever. And I, I, so I still got to put it in, in my in my top my top few. No, Ian, I, I completely agree. All in all, for, for the 95 minutes that we played that night, or 96, including the first half stoppage time, it was it was a whirlwind of a football match. I'll never forget it. You know, every time we scored, you know, we scored the opener, some was tremendous in that game. You know, it was such an end-to-end game. The animosity started to build when the Urente goal went in. In the ground, there was constant banter between the fans. There was expletives. There was It had absolutely everything. It had the intensity. It had the desire from the fans. You felt like you were playing the game. You were kicking every ball, heading every ball, feeling every single thing that Pep was doing. You were doing it in your seat. And I was sat in the other corner to where I'd normally sit, right next to the away fans, east stand, south stand corner, and we were millimetres away from them, if anything. We're in touching distance. And it, 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 it wasn't a nice thing all game to see them goading us, us goading them. But it almost added to the whole atmosphere and environment. And it built the game up to be what it was. And when we scored the goal, I'll never forget, I did what you did. I'm celebrating. I was being hugged and kissed and all sorts by everybody else in the ground, which is unthinkable right now because we're not even allowed in the ground. But... I'll never forget turning around and seeing Jess and she was in tears. She was celebrating. It was like, wow, she's, she's here. Like I never thought she'd ever experience anything like, I'm not saying it was like QPR, but I'd never thought I'd get to be with Jess to see her celebrate the way we kind of did against QPR. And then she was crying. I turned around and I saw what you saw. And then I saw her crying for another reason. And she went from crying with enjoyment and excitement to crying in despair and emotional outburst and it was just 
one of them, but to look at the whole game, it was by far one of the finest football performances I've seen at the Etihad from both sides. It really was. And to have it robbed from us at the end, the way it was robbed was, was horrible, but that shouldn't take away the spectacle of football that we saw. No, amazing game, amazing game. And um, I'm glad I lived through it. Um, if, if ever you needed a game to remind you how terrible it is that games are now being played in empty stadiums, um, that was one because uh, the emotions, the positive emotions, the negative emotions, the exhilaration, the excitement, the heartbreak. If you were sat there at home watching that on TV, um, I would suggest that you would have nowhere near that same experience. I mean, if you were actually watching it on TV on that night with that crowd in, you may have felt it, um, you know, quite high, actually. But what I'm saying is that if that game had been played in an empty stadium with artificial noise um, and I'd been sat in my front room watching it, then I don't think the emotion would have been the same. In fact, I don't think the game would have been the same. I don't think the games are the same. I think uh, professional footballers feed off the crowd. The crowd feed off uh, professional footballers and drama that was the best drama. It was heartbreaking for us as City fans, but that was fantastic drama, which is why it'll always be one of my favourite games. Well, fans definitely play play an impact, you know, have an impact, sorry, Ian, and play a massive part. You know, some of the games that spring to mind for me, Leicester, company doesn't, he maybe scores that goal. I don't think he does, though. See, I'm, 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 I'm even debating it myself. Does company score that goal? Without the anxiety in the ground, it was it, you couldn't you could hear a pin drop at times in that game, and then at other times you 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 it, it was just like the angriest football stadium in the world against QPR. There was a mixture of emotions. We went from despair to elation in minutes. You look at Munch and Gladbach in the Champions League. We were behind in that tie. Everton in the League Cup semi final, um, where the ball went out and Sterling was supposedly supposed to have kept it in, and them comebacks and. We are Hamburg, one of those clubs. Hamburg, that, remember that? Hamburg, I remember Hamburg. the Hamburg game. The yeah. tickets were a fiver or something and, uh, and everybody was up for it. What an atmosphere. You know, that's what football is. That's what, that's what we're missing. And, and, and it, does, it does play a massive part in, in why football is, is how it is right now with the lack of intensity maybe. But let's move on then, Ian, straight into number three then. Are we getting there now? Um, number three, why is it so special to you? And, and well, what is it? My number three game is the first football match, the first City match I ever attended. Um, I knew this would be in. I knew this would be in. <laughs> the 15th of April, 1970. Um, I was only a boy. Um, I'd wanted to go and watch my heroes. Uh, my hero was Colin Bell. And my very protective uh, mum would not let me go anywhere near a football ground. She was German. And Schalke are a German club. And that is actually the town where she was born, in Gelsenkirchen in Germany. And she um, didn't sort of go, oh, City are playing Schalke, I'll take in, he wants to go. It didn't happen like that. She got a phone call, pre-internet, um, etc., from her, uh, my uncle uh, saying, um, I'm coming over to the game. I'm actually, he, he, was, he was a travel agent. I'm bringing over a group of Schalke fans. So I will be at the game. So my, he'd spent his summer holidays growing up with, uh, with my mum and dad. So they were very, very close to him. And they said, oh, fantastic. I have to come for your tea then. And he said, oh, no, no, I can't do that. He said, basically, I've got to take these fans. I've got to be with them all the time until they get to the turnstiles. As soon as they've gone in, 
then I'm free. I can do whatever I want. The second the match finishes, I have to be back at the turnstiles to meet them when they come out, to put them back on the coaches, send back to the airport or back by a coach to Germany. So the only time you can see me is during the game. Another uncle of mine, my uncle Bernard, um, uh, was part of this conversation and said, well, I can get you tickets to go to the game. We could go meet you at the game. And I thought, wow, that means I yes, get to go. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so that's what we did. My mum, my dad, uh, my uncle Carl uh, and my uncle Bernard um, and me went to the game. We sat in the Platte Lane end, uh, my first match. And obviously you've seen these things on the concourses at City where people put their first match up. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I was lucky enough to have mine up for a while. It's gone now because they've redeveloped where the tunnel is and everything. So it's gone, sadly. But I sent in my story, which uh, anonymously and basically it was, you know, I remember getting there and uh, I'd only ever seen football matches on black and white TV. So when yeah. I got there, I was overwhelmed by the, the grass being green, the shirts being sky blue. You could smell the liniment that they used to, to put in the legs to keep the muscles supple. You could smell that. It was a very strong smell. You could smell yeah. the, the, the tobacco and the, the smoking and, and bovril and things like that. And although when you're a kid, your senses are higher anyway, but being in that electric atmosphere of a football ground for the first time, wow, my, my senses were on overload. I sat there and watched that game from the Platte Lane end and my dreams came true because I saw Neil Young score two goals. I saw Colin Bell... Um, score a goal. I saw Francis Lee score a goal. I saw Mike Doyle score a goal. So the players that were the most special to me, um, they didn't become more special because they scored those goals. They were already special to me, scored in that game. And and again, it was a, a fantastic atmosphere. Uh, my mum and my uncle, um, the German one anyway, uh, just spent the whole game talking to each other. Never, I don't think they even watched the game. Although Schalke got a, a, a goal right at the end of the match at our end. Um, and when that ball went in the back of the net, you could have dropped you know, a pin and you could have heard it in the ground. Except, and I've, tr I've tried to listen out for it when I watched the video of it again, to see if I could hear my mum scream. Because I'm pretty sure next to me, she went, yay, shout yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went, no, what are you talking about? That's against City. And she said, oh, come on, you've got to yeah, let us have yeah, yeah. one goal. So yeah. um, that was that was that first game. And, um, uh, you know, I, mean, I suppose you could say I was hooked after that. Um, that was the only match my mum ever attended with me. Um, she died seven years later, but she wasn't a, a football fan. She didn't want to go to the games. Her spirit has continued on with the scarf, um, but she was very protective. And actually, um, that the season that uh, that she passed um, was the season I started going home and away, and have never looked back since. So um, she didn't want really want me to go. But I'm I'm sure now, if she was looking down and she saw the the life and the the career that I've had, she'd be very pleased and very proud. But. Um, that when, when City have played Schalke a couple of times since then, you can imagine how, how special those uh, those matches are to me. Well, we we went to Main Road myself and Jess with you, didn't we, to do to do a vlog um, for the for the game against Schalke? I think it was round of sixteen, weren't it? A couple of years ago now, we went down to Main Road with you to do your your vlog for the day and your match day vlog, and you were talking about obviously your mom and and what the fixture meant, um, and we beat Schalke seven 0 that night and. What, what we really should have done is let Schalke score at the end. So so obviously your mum in the heavens could have celebrated that one goal that we let him have. But I think you actually, if, if I remember rightly, if I'm not misquoting you, Ian, you actually said we 
you, you, you were almost hoping for Schalke to score one, so it wasn't as as heavy that defeat for them. Because um, they weren't, I mean, they weren't terrible in that game. We were just so good and and so superior. But that day, that day meant more to you because it was such a, a unique, you know, experience for you to be able to reflect on, on you know, your relationship with your mum, your bond with your mum, the whole, you know, City versus Schalke at the Etihad and, and in Manchester. And also the fact that it was, you know, such a nostalgic game because it was your first ever one. So I knew that I'd be in there. Um, it is at number three, so it's in a very respectable position. Why is it not number two, Ian? What is in number two space? Uh, number two, um, there have been great moments I've had. Um, I mean, I don't say that uh, egotistically, but great moments of pleasure, let's say, whether you thought they were very good or not. Great moments of commentary that I've had. And one of my greatest commentary moments came in uh, match number two in my uh, my countdown. Uh, but it is just one of those games that all City fans will remember forever. It was actually in the 2011-2012 season. Uh, it was in Stretford, um, which is quite close to Manchester. It was the first Manchester derby of the season. Um, and a certain Mario Balotelli scored a couple of goals that day. His first one when he lifted his shirt and Chappie, the kit yeah. man, had had a shirt underneath that said, why always me? because uh, he was in the headlines quite a bit at the time. Uh, and in derby matches, when I was commentating for BBC Radio, uh, the etiquette, the, the protocol was that um, we had a United reporter and we had a City reporter and we had uh, two summarisers, one from each team as well. Yeah. Um, the summarisers were involved in the whole 90 minutes, but the commentators, the ball-by-ball -ball guys, um, I can't remember actually who it was that day. It might have been Stuart Gardner. It might have been Bill Rice. But anyway, it was me as the representative of City. The idea being that you couldn't have the City man commentating on a whole United game because a lot of United fans would complain or vice versa. So I got the second half of each half and watched the first half of each half. But in that second half of each half, some of the great goals came, particularly the sixth goal which was the absolute best pass you will ever see in your life. I don't care how many passes Kevin De Bruyne does in the future and how many passes other people do, but I'm afraid if you if this was a top 10 of the greatest passes I've ever seen, David Silver's volleyed pass that sent Dzeko away for City's sixth goal will always be remembered by me. And when Dzeko put that ball in the back of the net, I... My commentary was along the lines of, and, and remember, I was supposed to be being neutral, but I felt that when the sixth goal went in at Old Trafford to beat United 6-1, I was entitled to do this. Even if I'd been completely neutral, I think this would have been the fair way to do it. At least that's my excuse. And I actually screamed down the, the microphone and uh, Jekyll uh, scores the goal here and Manchester United are absolutely battered here at Old Trafford. And I thought, what a great thing to be able to say, mean and feel. And uh, so I will always remember that. Um, uh, absolutely fantastic day um, and something that I could never have dreamed of. Uh, such an emphatic victory. Obviously, we went on to win the league that year. It was pivotal in that season. Psychologically, yeah. I believe it broke them. It broke Fergie. Um, it was the most, his biggest home defeat he ever suffered in his career. Um, 
you know, it, it, it just had everything about it. And, um, uh, and so it, it has to be right near the top of, of any chart of, of great games that I've seen. So, um, yes, it is United. That does make a difference. Derby matches are, are important to, to Manchester City fans who've grown up in their shadow for so long. So I make no apology for, for picking a Manchester derby right near the top of the chart. Well, I, I'm not going to pretend that I used to go to bed and imagine beating United 6-1 when I was little, but I always used to imagine beating them well in their own backyard. And me and Joel watched it together in a pub in um, in in Royton, where we lived, at, well, in Shaw, sorry, at the time, with two United fans. And I'll tell you something now, that was by far... It was. It was just you. Don't, City fans listening to this don't need me to tell them how they felt on that day because they already know. But from my perspective, it was the best thing before the QPR game that could have ever happened to us. And you know what? It, it stands alone in its own right anyway, because it was a derby, and it's just like you say, the manner of the goals, the way we tore them apart, the psychological advantage we gained in that game, how important it was after the QPR game when you look at goal you know, goals scored and the and the, the, the goals against and the goal difference, how much that 6-1 win guaranteed us the title in the end. And not only that, it had so many magical moments, the Balotelli, why always me, the the Aguero, um, the Aguero goals, the Dzeko goals. And like you said, that pass from Silva, we did, uh, is David Silva the best ever City player podcast right at the start of lockdown, if, if people listening remember it. And I said that my favourite Silva moment was against Wigan when he put Aguero through for his hat-trick, when he slotted past Alabzi for the third time in that game. And it was when he did this ridiculous bit of skill in amongst three Wigan, tough, strong, bullish players, wiggled his way through and slotted Aguero in. But had it not have been that, that pass, like you say, is probably the best pass I think I've ever seen a City player play. And, and, and it was just tremendous. And I can see why that pass in that game is, is in your top five. And I don't think the first game or the top one, as Brian Clifford put it, um, the top one out of one, I don't see it being any other game than the one that I think everyone listening to this for the last however long will have anticipated it to be. Ian, what is your favourite ever City game that you've ever attended? It can only be um, the 13th of May, 2012, um, when City beat Queen's Park Rangers to lift the title uh, for the first time since 1968. Um, all the years of hurt, all the years of, of watching City lose to York away and, and, um, and play Macclesfield and Bristol Rovers and Lincoln City and all the rest of it um, were suddenly forgotten. Um, it, was, it was what I never thought I'd see really for, for many years. And to do it in such a style, such drama, even on the day we couldn't have predicted it was going to be quite the way it was. Um, having beaten United through Vinnie Company's header um, with uh, the last the you know, last home game before the QPR game, that seemed to be the magic night when the title was going to come City's way. I said to my son before I went up to Newcastle the weekend before, if we win today at Newcastle, I don't want to tempt fate, um, but if we win today at Newcastle, we're going to win the league, you know, we're actually going to win the league and you're going to be there, but we're still going to beat Newcastle. And Yaya Torre scored 
two goals um, typically yeah, yeah, in, in crucial moments and we came back from Newcastle with the win. So I, I think me and a lot of other City fans went along there whilst we all have the typical City feeling inside us and that fear that it can all go wrong at the last minute, I think there was an overwhelming feeling of confidence going into that game, even though QPR were still playing to stay up, which was the one thing that could spoil it because we knew they were going to be motivated. It wasn't a case of them just turning up and there's nothing at stake, like maybe Charlton had done in that 5-1 mm-hmm. win that I mentioned earlier on. Uh, but this one, uh, they had something to play for. And from a professional point of view, I was also mindful of the fact that it was either QPR or Bolton that were going to get relegated. And Bolton were one of the teams in Greater Manchester that I had to have a mind on. And of course, if City didn't win it, United were going to win it. So overall, it was a very Greater Manchester-orientated title race. Before the game, we did a lot of stuff on air uh, with with, with fans outside the ground, one of which was um, uh, somebody who I... Uh, really cared about an old oldish guy called Roy, who'd um, who'd been there in the fifties when City had won the title and um, was around in '68, and he was in his later years. He didn't he didn't last many years, sadly, after the uh, after that 2012 day. But he was there that day, and he was like a little kid again. And and he cried when I interviewed him. Just this was before the game about how it much it meant to him. My my wife and son were there. Some of my other friends were there. Um, it really meant a lot to me that day both uh, from a professional point of view and, of course, as a fan. I was sat in the, the press box eventually with Nigel Gleghorn, um, former City player, who I really, really like. Nigel is such a funny, clever, uh, self-deprecating sort of guy. Very, very good commentator as well. And uh, the one thing I thought about the day, never expecting it to be like it was, was that the, next to me was somebody I could really rely on. He yeah, wouldn't let yeah. these emotions get the best of him. So we saw uh, Pablo Zabaleta give City the lead. Uh, what a perfect player to score that opening goal! Oh, yeah, you know, somebody heart bled City, oh, and yeah. I and and everything was going according to plan. And it was just, uh, you know, I was already starting to think about, you know, the celebrations, etc. Um, but then, obviously, things started to go wrong, and suddenly it's one all. And before you know, we're, we're two one down. And and I'm thinking, and I know this is. Not what I should have been thinking. This is why I'm commenting. Sorry, does it does it bring it all back now? I mean, I'm getting anxious just thinking about going two one down to QPR right right now as we sit here recording this. I'm imagining what how I felt, and it, it, every time I think about the Q, I have to tell Jess that although I loved it, I don't like talking about it in a sense because I go back to where I was in my seat at the game, seeing Mackie at home, and and it brings me right back to the darkest moment of my City fan life. At that time, it was horrible when that ball at the back of the net. Sorry, I interrupt. No, no, no. It's you're right, and it, the more when you start talking about it, or even when you start watching the video, because I watched and watched it recently. But when I've watched it, I've thought, you know, we're not going to win this game. What will we know that they did? <laughs> but you still yeah. have that feeling. Um, but I'm starting to think as well. I'm, um, you know, the boss that I worked for um, said to me. Um, the day after the uh, the last game of the season, I went in on the Monday morning breakfast programme from six o'clock till nine o'clock as the f- presenter's friend with Alan Bezik. And um, basically to just talk every, the listeners through over and over again. And I thought, if we've if we, we've lost this game and we've blown it and United win, this is going to be horrendous. Oh, and I'm thinking no. this while the game's unfolding. And then when Jekko scored the goal in stoppage time, I, I believe it or not, I thought... 
you know what, this is going to make it even worse now because we were within one goal. If we'd have lost 2-1, I'd got used to the fact we weren't going to win it. And when he scored the goal, I thought this is going to make it so tantalisingly close. It's actually going to be even more agony. So in my commentary, I probably didn't sound very excited. And emotionally, I didn't, because I didn't think there'd be another one. But then as the ball starts to be built up from Nigel de Jong... Now I want to talk about it again. Now I want to talk about it again. <laughs> the professional side of me starts starting to think, you know, get get it together here, Ian. You know, um, and I noticed suddenly noticed Mark Hughes, who was the QPR manager, um, start to jump about on the touchline in the corner of my eye, and I thought, why is he celebrating? He can only be celebrating because he's heard the scoreline from Bolton. Maybe Bolton have, have not won their game, which means QPR is safe, no matter what the scoreline is here. But nobody told me in my headphones. And then I noticed, and this is all split seconds, but it's like people say when you're in a car crash that time stands still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Even though it, it, it was only seconds, you know, it, it, I had time to think about it. I suddenly started noticing the QPR fans yeah, celebrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, remember them, I remember them celebrating. And I thought, they must, Bolton must have got relegated, but nobody's telling me. Why is nobody telling me? Um, and I said in my commentary um, exactly what I'd seen. And I said, I wonder if QPR will lose focus here, you know, because they're safe if they know this, because they, they got the message from the bench. Seconds were relapsing, that's all. Not minutes, seconds. And then, as the ball's going from Nigel de Jong to Balotelli and Aguero and everything... Somebody does say in my headphones, it's finished at Sunderland. United have won, won 1-0. So at this point, I know that there's not going to be a miracle equaliser from Sunderland that's going to give City the title. City actually have to score. And it's now in their own hands. And at that point, the ball is one 2 between Aguero and Balotelli. And he puts the ball in the back of the net. And I, of course, go mental, because that was my style of commentating anyway but controlled mental, if you can imagine that. And although I didn't go Aguero, which is what's immortalised these days, I just shouted, Aguero scores the goal, Aguero scores the goal. You'd have to listen to it to hear it in context. But at that moment, Nigel Glegong leaps up into the air uncontrollably with headphones on, microphone in his hand, all the wires connected and pulls the whole equipment onto the floor. All the wires come out and we go off air. So whilst everybody was celebrating and, and frankly having orgasms and everything, um, I'm actually on the ground, <laughs> uh, still of course celebrating, still of course euphoric, but picking the bits up and trying to. Put, I'm thinking, I've got to get us back on air, you know. This is this is I've got to do. He's still celebrating. We were off air for 45 seconds. I listened to back to what happened on radio, and somebody picked up and said, "Oh, we seem to have lost connection with Ian here at, at City." We'll be back there as soon as we can. We were off for 45 seconds. It felt like 45 minutes. Yeah. And that 45 seconds was the game hadn't kicked off again when we got back on air. They were still just running about celebrating. Well, I remember it, Ian. It felt like that celebration went on forever. It felt like I just remember the ball in the back of the net. And I remember seeing it in the back of the net. And then for about a minute and a half, so longer than that 45 seconds, I don't remember anything. I mean, I remember QPR kicking off again. I think it was Bobby Zamora, if I'm right, that kicked off. And the ball went down to that corner flag where I was sitting. And then Joe Hart picked the ball up and he blew the whistle. But I remember, I, I don't remember much from the ball in the net. I, sit, I remember seeing Aguero run off. 
and then it was like a minute and a half, a minute and a half of a trance, like a, a like just a buzzing sound, like you know when you're underwater or something, and you just hear that buzzing sound. And I, I remember punches, headbutts, kisses, smooches off Deirdre from three rows back. I don't know, it was just monumental. And then I, I can't remember what was happening in the ground. I just remember what was happening to me. And then we came back round again, and it was just phenomenal. Like it's just. But I remember you telling me the story and I can't believe that whilst I was doing that, being kissed and smooched and butted and punched and lifted up by the underpants that you were on the floor picking bits up. Yeah, well, we got it all back together again. I went back on air as if I'd not missed a second of it. And yeah, they're still celebrating here. And then on the final whistle, I did a sort of a commentator's version of that thing from years and years ago. Um, where that guy said, Maggie Thatcher, are you watching? And I did my sort of big celebration then at the end. And um, I was on the pitch afterwards. Um, strictly speaking, I didn't have a pass. I had a radio mic, so I was live on the radio, but I didn't have permission to go on the pitch. But because the stewards recognised me and knew me, um, I sweet-talked my way and I was on the pitch. And I was stood with Gareth Barry's wife, while the team were lifting the trophy just a few yards away, getting her reaction to what it was like to watch uh, Gareth lift the trophy. And then I interviewed practically every player in the team. I interviewed Roberto Mancini. Um, and I mean, you know, as a City fan, forget being a journalist, as a City fan, you know, I had the best seat in the air, the, the most privilege. I was the luckiest man in the world. When the game finished, um, and everybody had gone and all the confetti was still on the pitch. Vincent Company was still out there kicking a ball about with his, his son or his daughter, a little kid anyway. And um, I asked him for his shirt because he was still wearing all his kit. And, uh, and he said, oh, you know, this will be an heirloom. I'll, I'll pass it down. So I said, well, can I have your captain's armband? And he gave me his captain's armband, which is the, you know, the, the possession, football possession that I treasure the most in the world. Uh, the following day, I was also allowed to go on the open-top bus um, around Manchester. I was the only journalist allowed on there. Uh, yeah, that's me hold, on the video version of this, me holding the medal, wearing the captain's armband, um, as you can see, around my arm, which, I've, of course, I've still got with Vincent. There it is in all see, its glory. Look at that. Still in his kit. If you can't see it, then Harlan's holding up a picture of it. It's on my Facebook profile. I'm sure many people have seen that. And um, the next day I was on the, the open top bus and I was allowed to go up on the top deck and interview players. I was the only person up there that wasn't a player. And, um, you know, to, to, to see the people around me and, and feel that atmosphere. And um, I interviewed Vincent downstairs. I've got a story I could tell you about that for another day. But um, basically he reminded me to look after his captain's armband, which uh, which I always will do. So, um only that game could be number one. What, what what game beats? Nothing. You know what, Harlan? I don't care how. If you live to be 150, you will never have a better day than that. Well, you didn't say it, Ian, but somebody did. We'll never see anything like that ever again. More specifically, we'll never see anything like this ever again. And do you know what? We've had moments that have made our spines tingle, but nothing, nothing will ever beat City 3, QPR 2 at the Etihad, 13th of May, 2012. Just the game of all games. A little run through then of Ian's top 10 City games. Luton at home in 1983. 
uh, at number 10. At number nine, the Youth Cup final at home in 1986. At number eight, the FA Cup semi in 2011 against United. We won 1-0. The uh, number seven is the Charlton game, Ian, of what year? That was 85, I think. Yeah, 85. 85. Yeah, I've got that there as well. 1976 League Cup final against Newcastle is your number six. Your number five is the League Cup semi-second leg before that game in 76, where we beat Middlesbrough 4-0. Your number four is Spurs Champions League. Tremendous game that we unfortunately lost due to a VAR decision. Your number three is the 15th of April, 1970. Your first ever game uh, that you went to with your mum against FC Schalke. Your number two is the 6-1 game at Old Trafford, where we thumped Trafford United 6-1 in their own backyard with Dzeko topping off the game after the silver assist that is your favourite pass of all time. And number one, it had to be City 3, QPR 2 at the Etihad Stadium, 13th of May, 2012. Sergio Aguero, you absolute legend. And Ian has got Vinny's captain armband, or captain's armband from that game. And he'll never forget it. Ian, what a top 10. Seriously, some of them games, I'm not old enough to remember. Some I am. I think I'm only old enough to remember three, two of them, three of them. Um, but they are Ian's top 10. And, mate, I'll tell you something. I'll be going through that list and searching through YouTube and looking at a few of these goals and a few of these games that I've not already seen. And I think a lot of people that are listening to this will either remember them or their kids will remember them or... They'll ask the grandpas, granddads, you know, grandmas, and well, what a top 10. And I hope you've enjoyed listening. I have. Well, there are other games in there. I'm sure people will have uh, other memories. Um, and maybe if you ask me again another year from now, one or two of them might be different. I don't know. Things change, don't they? But I just hope that in the time I've got left and in the time when we all are back in stadiums again, because that when it that's when it really matters, not these times when we're all kept out. I hope there are some big memories still to come. And the one that, that would really cap it all off for me would be there at the Champions League final when uh, that big ear, that big jug-eared Champions League uh, or European Cup is lifted. Uh, I would have loved it to have been Vincent Company. It's not sadly going to be Vincent Company anymore, um, but I'd love to see that. Maybe it'll be Lionel Messi in a couple of years. Be. It could uh, be. Uh, stranger things have happened um, but whatever I hope I've still got a few more years of watching City and having great moments like that and you know what even the bad days um, you know are great days because in that list was was getting relegated against Luton um, it's, it's what being a football fan's all about being, being part of a shared experience and uh, being in a stadium which I cannot emphasise enough. Um, get, if you've never been to a game or you've not been to many games, particularly if you're watching this from further afield and you get a chance to come over and attend a game, do it. It cannot be highly recommended enough. Being there is what it's all about. Yeah, Alan, thanks very much for asking the questions. No worries, um, Paul. We'll perhaps do another one. Um, uh, you know, maybe favourite players or favourite goals or whatever in the future. If you want more of this, uh, let me know if you've enjoyed it. Um, and I'm, I'm really pleased. I know it's been a long one, this. I hope you've stuck with us right to the end. Thanks very much to charleslouis.co.uk who've sponsored it. Without them, we wouldn't even be doing these podcasts. Um, so thanks very much. And um, we'll say it together on this one, Harlan. What yeah. is it? It's, it's great, great to, to be, be a blue. A blue.